0: We'll begin reading in Acts chapter 24, verse 1. I'll be reading, as is my custom, out of the New King James Version. Acts chapter 24, beginning verse 1. God's word declares, Now after five days Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintained that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered inasmuch, As I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection." of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, when I have a convenient time. I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Well, we have taken a couple of weeks to look into the. declaration of God to Paul of his presence, standing by him, and his promise. And we have seen the power that is in that condition of being in the presence and living in the promises of God. We've also looked at the conditions of those to some degree, and we've seen its outworking Not that everything goes smoothly, but that in the midst of all of it, we can boldly and courageously uh, have a confidence that God is at work. And he will finish the work that he has begun in us to his glory. And so Paul has this knowledge that he will get to Rome. God will be with him. It doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be any suffering involved. But he knows that his life is secure until his work in God's kingdom is finished. And this he really evidences in other places where he speaks and writes of his knowledge that while he is on earth, he is here to minister. And if he loses track of that, he may very well be considered to have lost, to become disqualified in the race. And so Philippians, where he talks about, I press on. Even though he had this knowledge of God's presence and promises, it is still incumbent upon him to press on. Because he did not want to be disqualified, having brought others to Christ, and then to fail to finish the race. And so we're really going to see his working of what it takes to finish the race and what's involved in it. And one of the facets that motivates us to do that is what we want to study today. Uh, before I do, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And we thank you for its power. And we pray that you might, by your spirit, work in our midst That that power might bring a harvest in each life represented here. That there might be a response. And indeed that we will be responding whether by encouragement, whether by repentance, or by fear, or by apathy. And Lord, we pray that we might respond well. that we might see your hand in your word, recognize its authority, and have a readiness to bring it into our lives. Again, as always, we pray for a time of protection over this hour. Certainly that the word spoken might be guarded from error opinion, but also that our minds might be guarded from distractions and from wandering, that we might focus ourselves upon your word of truth and consider it. Not just the information, but the ramifications that it calls upon for all men. We pray your help in all of this, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul has not been torn apart. He has not been slaughtered by 40 men. He has now been brought before Felix. His accusers have arrived, and they are bringing their big guns. They have brought in great orators, and we might look at the oration and say, that's a great oration. Um, But apparently for the day it was so considered. Um, We have Paul confronting his enemies before a court that largely is only interested in the case as it revolves around keeping the peace in Jerusalem on behalf of Caesar. It really is, uh, there are some personal interests both with Felix here and with Agrippa later on. We're going to have some personal interests. There really isn't a lot of evidence that Festus had a lot of interest in it. But at least Felix and Agrippa certainly did. Because of their connection to the Jewish nation, and we are told in the midst of this that Felix has a wife who is Jewish, and so he is not ignorant of what's going on here, but he has number one assignment, and the assignment for each of these that we have encountered is to keep Jerusalem and Judea um, from rebellion. Um, Because this has been a common occurrence um, really since... Antiochus Epiphanes violated the temple, um, and we have all the Maccabean revolts and and many revolts since then um, that just keep cropping up in Judea. And that is their primary interest, and that really goes all the way back to Christ's trial as well. The primary interest isn't really to mediate in their religion. They really aren't interested in that. From their perspective, they're allowed to practice Judaism as a... Uh, a At the leisure of Caesar. Caesar has permitted it to be practiced. Um, Most of the uh, Roman citizens considered um, uh, Christians and and Jews in the same boat. They considered them atheists because they didn't believe in the gods um, and treated them accordingly. And so Felix, though, has a familial connection to the Jewish nation through his wife. And he is familiar with this, but he really doesn't want to adjudicate between beliefs, between the way and Judaism. That's not his purpose. His really purpose is to make sure that there is nothing going on here that is developing into another rebellion against Rome. And if you think this is unfounded, you need again to remember how close we are historically to the rebellion that caused the fall of Jerusalem. We are about 56, I'm sorry, yeah, 56 to 58. 58 is when uh, Festus takes over from Felix. And so we're about two years earlier, 56. Um, In 10 years, 66 AD, there's going to be a great rebellion. Uh, There's going to be a a riot, essentially, in Jerusalem. Um, It's going to cause a war that will... uh, disgrace one Roman general, if you will, um, and will then bring in Titus to finish the job and it will create huge problems for Jerusalem and eventually her entire collapse and the temple will be destroyed. So we're just 10 years away from that. And so this is a very real danger in Judea. And the Romans were all about finding and, and destroying Those that would raise up this kind of rebellion that's in the heart of the Jews. And they just know these people are like that. Um, And by the way, this isn't anything new. Uh, If you go back and read into Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, one of the letters that their opponents, and that's the rebuilding of Jerusalem, one of the letters that the opponents write back to the um, Persians, uh, Cyrus and and those, is... um, Listen, you don't know the history of these people. These people are stubborn and rebellious and they cause problems for every king that's ever been over them. Even their own kings couldn't keep them in control. And so this is their history going back hundreds of years. And so the Romans understood that history to some degree and these men's job was, jobs were to keep it all uh, intact. Limbo, at least, at least to keep that that rebellious nature subdued. So that um, and they did that by finding the rabble rousers and destroying them. Jesus was viewed as one. Paul here is being viewed as one, and they are going. And we already saw that this uh, commander was concerned about this Egyptian rabble rouser that was around and about, and so. Felix here is not that interested, really. and I think it's evident by the Jews in their accusation that that's they know what the Romans interest is. And the orator comes forward with this accusation. Um, in verse 5 of chapter 24 uh, it says, "We have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and by that he means the Roman Empire and the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see, every term almost in there is, has one purpose, and that is to tell the Romans, this guy is divisive. This guy raises up dissent. This guy raises up rebellion. And he is a problem, a troublemaker is what we would call him today. Um, and he even went in and tried to disrupt the temple mount And we all know how concerned you Romans are about what goes on in the Temple Mount, and this is the guy that's going to cause problems there. And so they were very calculated, very careful in their presentation of this accusation that it fit into the Romans' concern. That the Romans' concern was that there not be any rebellions allowed, permitted, to be raised up And so this is a rebel rouser, creator of dissension. And it's not just in Jerusalem. This guy travels the whole Roman Empire causing this problem. Of course, we recognize that in the event that happens weeks earlier, in the event there, there were Jews from those regions of the Roman Empire where Paul administered. And they're the ones that recognized him. Remember what their motivation was out there in the synagogues was re- jealousy out of his popularity of the message of Christ and its power that filled synagogues on the second and third week that he was there, uh, as people thronged to hear this message of this Messiah, this deliver, this savior. When they run across this same man that some of them had stoned, had driven off, had threatened themselves, had tried to kill, previously they incited. They incited the rebellion, the rioting. But the com- this is the accusation, carefully crafted to get Felix's attention. That this is a man that if you have any ideas of keeping peace in Judea, you'd better get rid of this guy, or we will not be at peace. There's almost a threatening nature to it, that if this guy is let loose, um, you can uh, anticipate rioting and rebellion. And again, the expectation is, of course, dismissive that we were violent. They always want to dismiss their own predilection towards violence against the men of the way, um, which we had seen what it had done. Paul had seen firsthand when he was still named Saul and seeing their treatment of Stephen. But they want to discount that and said, no, the only violent person was your own Lysias, the commander. And uh, that's a tough job. In fact, his replacement in Jerusalem is the one that caused all the problems that led to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so we find that uh, they want to displace anything upon themselves. They want to carefully identify those facets of the Roman interests that they think they can accuse Paul of violating. And, of course, the Jews who come with them nod their head. They agree. Everything is just as they said. They have to have witnesses. But we find later on, by Paul's testimony, that who they failed to bring were any of the original men who pointed Paul out in the temple. The men who weren't from Judea. The men who weren't of that region. None of them are there. The likelihood is, because they were on pilgrimage and were uh, coming to Pentecost, that they had returned home is the evidence, or they were simply were not brought in. And Paul's going to make that a point, that if you want to really level an accusation, let's get past all the generalizations, and let's bring some proof, and let's bring forth the actual witnesses who identified me in the temple, and let them tell you what I was doing when they grabbed me. He had his witnesses because he was going in there paying the way for several men to be purified who had taken vows, become Nazarenes, the Nazarite vow. And so Paul is now given his chance to speak. And as a Roman citizen, uh, this is his right, which the Jews did not have, but Paul did. And so we have, being verse 10, his response. And we do not have the flattery and the uh, aggrandizement that we see from Tertullus, the orator. We have a sincere response of a man who's going to stand his ground. He recognizes the authority of Felix. And let's start right there. I know you have been for many years a judge of this nation, and I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. This is not an adversarial relationship that Paul has with any of these men. When he comes to Felix, when he comes to Festus, when he comes to Agrippa, even as he travels over to uh to Rome and has to face Caesar all along the way, whether it's commanders or centurions, whoever it is that has responsibility over Paul, you will almost never see him in an adversarial relationship with these Roman men, with these soldiers. He very meekly almost declares his Roman citizenship to avoid a beating a little earlier, and it startles everybody. Here we find him identifying Felix. We find him with a tenderness that has an interest in Felix's salvation that's going to be evident later on. It's going to be similarly with King Agrippa and Festus as they gather together. This is a man who wants to reach these people. He is not afraid of their judgment upon him. In fact, um, he is expecting a judgment upon him. (laughs) That's the goal is to just move through the system keep moving right up. He's going to make it all the way to Rome. And so that's going to necessitate some some things to happen. And so his purpose, his, his mission from God is to share Christ with these courts. And when we think of a court, it's not just the judge. Certainly um, here Felix is going to get an earful and um, it's going to want him to hear more in private. and He's going to do that. In fact, all these guys want private audiences with Paul. And it reminds you, doesn't it, of Pilate wanting a private audience with Jesus? They're fascinated by who Christ is and what he promised. And, and it, it's no mistaking, as you go through Paul's ministry, to see the Gentiles, the Romans, flocking to... Paul and to Christ um, over and over again and so and not just to Paul to Peter as well with Cornelius the centurion and his responsiveness to Christ and so Felix is going to uh, be the main point of contact but he's not the only one these courts are not held one on one they are not private affairs. Um, when a ruler gets into the judgment seat, there is a lot of, of not just people, but authorities around him uh, that represent his government, essentially, that represent uh, the people of Caesarea. And so, uh, and, and we see it a lot more uh, with Festus, because Luke describes with great pomp and and and, and great uh, effect they come in and make this this big city-wide event uh, in the amphitheater. This isn't some small room in some little dark corner. Um, this is one of the main theaters right on the shores of Caesarea. Um, this is where judgment is done, uh, and that's in every Roman city. Uh, it's not just Caesarea by the sea, but but uh, you go to uh, the Bema seat in uh, in Corinth. It's in the main area. This is a very public event, this trial. We think of trials as being, you know, there's two lawyers, there's a judge, there's, Vic, there's the plaintiff and the defendant, maybe a few witnesses, and a couple of people of the press. Um, not like that in Rome. In the Roman Empire, they were very public affairs. And so we find Paul here willing to speak to the governor as his judge, um, and uses the word, i more cheerfully answer for myself. I am glad to be here and talking to you. What an attitude. Why? Because of the presence and promises of God, he knows his mission. And we would tend to be more adversarial. You know, I'm being held prisoner, I'm being falsely accused, And we tend to be defensive in that sense toward our judge when in fact this gives us an opportunity to speak of the reason of the hope that's in us that Paul encourages Timothy to be ready always to do and Titus as well. And so he's here to give an answer. And he begins with something that was missing in the accusation and that is facts. He will list them out. I've only been here for 12 days. I was in the temple. There was no argument. I was—I didn't have a crowd around me. Um, I wasn't in any synagogues. I wasn't walking through the city with a crowd ever. Um, and there's no proof for anything that they've said about me because I never incited a crowd. I never caused dissension from the Roman Empire. I may have a dissenting position even from the church in Jerusalem Paul had a dissenting position but we find that his arrival there he had already prepared himself to, to be very submissive to the authorities at hand and it persists even into his trials and so here he is giving the the, the facts and then he what does want to make a confession verse 14 Oh yes, I'll tell you right straight out. I am a follower of the way. They call a sect. And listen carefully to Paul's description, verse 14. According to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And there, in a nutshell, is Paul's testimony to Felix. And to the court. It is the same testimony he gave to Sanhedrin. Once he recognized that this was a means to divide this group, he declares this. And so, these are the facts. This is what I what i confess to you i am a follower of the way um they do call it a sect uh there but i worship um jehovah the same god they worship um i believe everything in the law and the prophets uh, which is going to be very powerful very shortly um, in our text i i hold the law and the prophets does that mean that the law is still extant over all no but i believe that they had a purpose They're our schoolmaster. They're to teach us. They're to instruct us that we are sinners and without a sacrifice that we cannot be right with God. They have their purposes and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. They point to him, declare him, expound on him. This was the text that Paul used in synagogue after synagogue and sermon after sermon. He used the law and the prophets. Or the only scriptures he knew. But what was it about the way in worshiping God of the Jews, believing the law and the prophets, is that he has hope? And this is not wishful thinking that we often associate with hope. Um, The Greek idea and the Jewish idea of hope is a sure, confident, future event. It is something that I know is coming, but I have not yet experienced. Um, It is like your paycheck at the end of the week or month or whenever you get paid. You hope to get paid now that in our vernacular in our language it's like oh i'm worried that they might not pay me um no I, in a in a the usage here is an expectation I, I expect to get paid at the end of the week or at the end of the month that's when my payday is and so i have a hope for my payday not that i think my business the, the company i'm working for is on shaky ground there might not be a paycheck um but rather that it's an expectation I have, I confidently have it, and I just haven't experienced it yet, and I can tell you it's coming. This is the word hope that's being used here. A confident expectation of something they know will come, but they have not yet experienced. And so he hopes for something in the Lord. Built on a belief in Jehovah, built on the law and the prophets, is this confident hope, and that is summarized in the last half of this verse by the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And again, we come back to it. And have we not seen this as the theme throughout Acts? That Luke focuses in on this over and over and over and over again. More than any other writer, Luke focuses in on the resurrection as that most potent part of the Christian message. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, God raised him. Cruel hands crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Again and again and again and again, Luke pushes forward to Theophilus. This is the power of Christ, that he is crucified and has risen. While Paul and others focus on the the propitiation and the atonement of the blood sacrifice of Christ, which was necessary and, and is is a powerful thing, especially when you get in the Hebrews and other passages for the Jewish uh, thought of him as being the last sacrifice for Luke coming at this more from a Gentilian perspective that didn't necessarily always understand the the power and value of that sacrifice. To him and for Theophilus and those that he spoke with, it was the resurrection. It was the resurrection that that stopped Mars Hill in their tracks where now we have to decide do we accept this or do we reject it? I have to think about this now. This guy is saying that people come back from the dead. And he really means it. And he expects himself to come back from the dead. And he expects me to come back from the dead. Resurrection isn't just for the just. It's also for the unjust. And we're going to see what that entails if we really consider that. And the Roman world was considering the power of this resurrected one. What it meant. Even the Jews didn't agree on the resurrection. Hence the division of the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so Paul brings it to this crystallized point of saying this is about the resurrection. And so what is the effect of having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection? What is it produced in Paul? And we're going to see two different responses. And they are going to be the two extremes One is going to be a fanatical, sure, confident hope in the resurrection and what it produces. And the other one is going to be a thoughtful consideration of, oh man, what if there really is a resurrection? Rejecting it offhand and not thinking of it or considering it or calling it a fairy tale, that is not an extreme reaction. That's a mediocre one. That's a thoughtless one it barely even counts as a reaction. It's a discounting. But to genuinely meditate on the idea that there is a resurrection, um, for Paul, we're going to see in this one passage the two extremes. Here's Paul. What does it mean that there is going to be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust to the believer? Verse 16, This being so, since this is my hope, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Brethren, we believe in the resurrection. That means that you are going to answer to God after death. What's written on your tombstone isn't important. What's in your little blurb in the newspaper isn't the end of the story the obituary. What people remember about you isn't of great concern any longer to you. When we have the sure hope of the resurrection, we recognize what that means. That when Paul says to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, that we um, usually say, well, that's very comforting, it's exciting, but it's also recognizing i am in the presence of the lord my judge and all this life he will examine and has been examining and he will try it by fire see what's wood hay and stubble what's gold silver and precious stones what's enduring what's wasn't enduring what was silly what was sinful what was pleasing to him what was displeasing to him and paul says because i have a hope in god that there will be a resurrection of the dead of the just and the unjust i always strive to have a conscience without offense toward god and men you might say well the law has just proven that you can't have a clear conscience the law keeps touching your conscience doesn't it you're a sinner you're a sinner you're a sinner he says i believe the law and the prophets the law points to my sin the prophets declare that there was one who will come who will clear your conscience of sin and impute to you righteousness that is beyond anything you can attain and so the beginning of a clear conscience is that touch of the law to our spirit to recognize that my conscience isn't clear before God I am loaded down with sin And every time I choose, I choose wrong. And when I do choose right, usually it's for selfish motives. And even my righteousness are filthy rags before him, Isaiah. So the law and the prophets, they, they call us to this, to our unclean conscience. And we have to keep bringing these sacrifices over and over and over again because I keep sinning, I keep violating the law. I can't meet God's minimum requirements. Let alone the perfection required to be in his presence. And so the first step to having our consciences cleared is by doing what John tells us in first John to confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is not by walking around saying, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner. Um, John deals with that doesn't he you walk around saying you're not a sinner you're not doing anything wrong I'm not doing anything wrong because I've just justified myself by saying that anything I do can't be wrong because I'm doing it John deals with that he says "Uh, you're a liar and you're calling Jesus a liar you're calling the law and the prophets liars the fact is is that we don't have clear consciences we know we've done evil Maybe even today. We've spoken evil. We've thought evil. We don't have a clear conscience. And so the law pricks us over that and, 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 and jabs us and reminds us. And so when Paul says, because I believe there's a resurrection, I strive to, to get, I want a clear conscience, always to have a clear conscience without offense toward God and men. There is a social part of the law as well, that that when you offend, be offensive and disobedient to your parents, when you steal from your neighbor, when you lie to them, when you covet their stuff, uh, when you sleep with their wives uh, or husbands, um, you're an offense to men. It's sin as well. Paul says, I want to strive to have a, a conscience that's free of that. That begins... By not denying sin, but rather receiving the sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. And his power over sin is evidenced not just by his death. Lots of people died on crosses. Tens of thousands of people died on crosses. So the Romans, dying on a cross wasn't anything spectacular. Happened almost every day. I'm sure across the whole Roman Empire it did happen every day. But this one rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And to be taken down from a cross, buried, and three days later to be be risen from the dead, meant something to a Roman official, because they knew that you don't get off a cross till you are dead. They were experts. No swooning, they knew that if this guy was crucified, he has no way he came down off that cross with any spark of life left in him. They would have broken his bones, they would have uh, his legs, they would have, they would have made sure he was strangled to death, they would have made sure he was lifeless. Every Roman official knew that. Dead, dead, dead. But he raised again. This was no coma. Toast state he went into. They knew he was dead, but he rose again. And so this penalty now has been paid and the power of the resurrection talks about clearing my conscience. And now, in response to that, I strive every day by either confessing and asking forgiveness of sins I have committed and, and also of striving to deal with sin and to avoid temptation and to and to respond to temptation with righteousness and truth, that's how I react, strive every day. Because I believe in the resurrection, I have to answer to God. I'm going to see Him face to face. And He will be my judge first and foremost when I get there. I want to share with you, he'll be your judge there at the Bema seat, judgment of Christ over his church. Not to determine whether you're going to be given access to heaven, but what you have done in this time to not cause offense toward God and men and to serve him. Paul understood that and he, he speaks it eloquently in Philippians. And I keep going there because of that declaration, again, tied over and over again to the resurrection. Verse 9 of Philippians 3 says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or i am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He goes on, striving, forgetting those things that are behind, and I press toward the mark, the high calling of Christ. This is the response of a meditative uh, understanding of the hope of the resurrection. That if we are people who believe in the resurrection, that we're going to be resurrected, man, how how do I want to live when I have to face Jesus one day and explain my life to him? Give answer for the choices I've made, for the motives that drove me, for the words, every idle word the Bible says. And there is a certain fear that I don't want to be ashamed on that day. That I have done so little for him when he has done so much for me. And Paul understood the resurrection and its implications uh, more profoundly than I do. Um, Because my service to him is not comparable. We will answer to Jesus Christ for how we live our lives. Every word, every thought, every act. Doesn't matter whether you're just or unjust, you'll answer to him. And for the believer, that is a driving motivation. Paul says, I always strive to have a conscience without offense. Oh, that we would see that as our motivation in our decision making in our lifestyle in every act and every word and every thought I don't want to offend God I'm going to have a clear conscience that when I lay down and it's just me and my thoughts and my recollections over the day and my Savior with me when it's us that I can commune with him without guilt. And where there is places of guilt, I'll confess it immediately. And say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Wash me white as snow right now. This is one end of the response. But there is another end of a thoughtful response to the resurrection. Verse 22 When Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way and more accurate than who, well, we would assume then the commander of Jerusalem, who wasn't up to date on it, but Felix had heard of it. He'd been around, and remember, myriads of Jews have come to know Christ as their Savior. He adjourned. He's disturbed a little bit by what he's heard. He realizes this is about the way versus Judaism. And he's got a Jewish wife. Um, The testimony and the message of Christ, the resurrected one, is very real. Remember, please, that there are still people alive in Judea who saw Jesus alive after he was dead. They're still around. They had... They had walked with him. They had talked with him. They had eaten with him. Um, This is something that was provable by many, many witnesses and could not be proven false by the Jews or the Romans. They couldn't silence it because it was true. And so he makes a reason to delay any decision. I'll wait for the commander to come, which really isn't the issue. It's really about his interest in the way. He gives Paul great liberty, we see in verse 23, which we've seen elsewhere. But I want you to look in verse 24 and 25. It says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And now we have the private or semi-private interchange much like Pilate had with Jesus, let's go in, let's leave the court. Let's leave the open area. Let's come in here and just you and me talk. I want to hear some more of what you have to say. And Felix pulls Paul in, gets his wife, and, and many have questioned her interest, and maybe she is the one who has, has uh, heard of and, and been interested in uh, the way of Christ. And, and he brings her, and they want to engage Paul, Uh, in this private, semi-private, just the two of them and him, uh, interchange. And they wanted to hear him out about this one who was raised again. And the resurrection, when it is thoughtfully considered, has this other response Verse 25 Now as he reasoned about righteousness self-control and the judgment to come Felix was afraid <clears throat> If we thoughtfully consider even if there is a remote possibility that there is a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust, which means that even if I die in sin and in disbelief, unbelief, I will still be resurrected, I will still have to answer to the judge of all the earth. And that judgment is the great white throne judgment for the unjust. For the just, we call the Bema seat seed of Christ. For the unjust, the great white throne. And Felix considers that. What if... You, I'm right. And you have to answer before the God of all the earth for all that you have done and for the fact that you have not received His Son, Jesus Christ. What if that is true? What if my hope is correct? All other religions at death um, become really slushy. It's really kind of muddied and And there's really not much going on. Maybe you'll be reincarnated, up or down. Um, You'll just cease to exist. You'll just burn up. Um, There there are all these other ones. But when you come to Christianity and you come to to its central message is that there is one judge of all the earth and all men, all men must stand before him. All must give an account. All must answer to him. And if that is remotely possibly true, it should strike fear in the hearts of everyone. Why? Because you have a God who is holy, holy, holy. Because he is dwelling in light and there is no darkness in him at all. Every one of us knows that there is darkness in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. And Paul begins, and I'm sure, using the law and the prophets because those are his scriptures. He talks about these powerful things three facets that we don't hear much about today what is true righteousness what is it what does it really mean and the law defines it very well you can't meet that standard what is self-control? Wow there's something nobody wants to talk about anymore not even Christians we are not animals we have a will. Self control is about sovereignty. It's about your will. When you hear the term self control, put your will right there. That's where it lands. That's where your will belongs in the scripture. Don't sit there and say, The devil made me do it. That's what they said when I was a little kid. I remember at camp, kids, t shirts, devil made me do it. Ha, ha, ha. Um, you know, I am absolved of responsibility because the devil made me do it. That later grew up into the way your parents raised you made you do it. Um, society made you do it. Your peers made you do it. The drugs made you do it. The, my disorder made me do it. That's what we've gotten to today. I have this disorder. I can't help myself. Yes, you can help yourself. It's called self-control. That's where your will is. That's where your self-sovereignty lies. That you have control over you. And so he approaches him and says, here's what real righteousness is. Here's what what self-control is, where your will is engaged. And here's the judgment of God. And when you line those three up with an overwhelming understanding that there's a resurrection, it is a frightening thing. It ought to be. Because none are righteous, no not one. None who understand, none go after God. They've all gone out of the way. They are together becoming profitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And yet, you have a will of your own that can choose. Which means that every time you don't do right, you've chosen not to. No one made you do it. No one else is to blame. No one else should be judged for it. No one else should take the penalty for it. You are fully responsible. And there is a true judge, a good judge, And a good judge judges. (laughs) And that's a frightening thing. And Felix, I have to believe, was a good Roman. And Romans cherished virtues and thoughtfulness. And Felix considered the message he was hearing. He didn't have to hear this. He invited this. He caused this meeting to happen with his wife. And the concept, the idea that there is this absolute standard of righteousness, that I have a will, and every time I don't meet that standard, I'm guilty, I'm responsible, I have to pay for it. And there's a judge who knows everything and every reason I do it. And if death doesn't Rescue me from that scenario because there's a resurrection. I am frightened. And rightly so. It's a frightening thing (laughs) to be hanging over the flames of hell by the little thread of your excuse that one flame licks off and you cast down. It's frightening. And we have extracted that fear from the message of the cross. And we've done such damage to our message by quickly not letting people meditate and become frightened of God and of the judgment to come that they have to answer for every decision that they made that they cannot displace it. They cannot blame their parents. They cannot blame society. They cannot blame their education. They cannot blame their economy. They can't blame the politicians. Well, <laughs> they're really good at blaming everybody but themselves. Um, displacing blame is what we've perfected. But when you consider self-control, you have your own will. Therefore, you're responsible for every single idle word. Forget all your actions. Forget your thoughts. Every idle word you're going to have to answer to God for. Every word you said in anger, in frustration, with bitterness, every idle word, which means that you weren't even thinking when you said it. But God was listening. You're going to have to answer for it. That's frightening. And Felix understood. Give him credit. He did more thoughtfulness than most people today in churches think about what it means for there to be a resurrection of the unjust as well as the just. If all of this is true, um, (laughs) and he's shaken. He says, go away. I'll call on you later. We don't know if he ever did call on him later. He did. He he hoped there might be given, and, and he sent for him. Well, it does say he sent for him more often and conversed with him. We don't know if he ever... Receive Christ or not, we're not ever told. He engaged Paul, and engaged Paul, and engaged Paul. We don't know if he'll, if he if he that fear of the judgment to come um, moved him to repentance that he could be over here of this of this fearful service of the one true and living God with a clear conscience. We don't know, but he heard it and he couldn't leave it alone because it dogs you. Once you are confronted and truly contemplate the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and that there is a righteous, holy, holy, holy judge of all the earth, it transforms your thinking. And that's why so many in our society don't want to hear it. La, 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 That's their response. And they call it fairy tales, and they don't want to consider and meditate on it. What if there is a resurrection and a righteous judge that I have to answer to for every choice I make that I can't blame anyone else against this absolute standard? That's a courtroom I don't want to walk into. And that's the power of believing in the resurrection it should drive the christian to serve god faithfully with a clear conscience and it should drive the unbeliever to consider his ways and to shake in fearful expectation of what's to come if he's put his eggs in the wrong basket see for the roman to die was not was honorable if it was done in a battle, and, it, and if people remembered you, and if they carved your name in a stone, oh, that was oh, I want to be remembered. How many people do you come across that's, I want to be just remembered? If people remember me, I'm still with them. How many, come on, you've heard it? Isn't that our society's response today? If people remember me, if all we remember them, they're still with us. What a bunch of hooey. There's a resurrection. The one who does remember everything you are, have said, and have done, and thought, is the judge of all the earth that you will have to answer to face to face one day. And that ought to shake you. And it shook Felix. He was afraid considering that. He wants to let Paul go, which gives evidence that he is positively disposed to his position. But we're not told. Felix simply drops off, he's replaced the Roman era. But we do find that he keeps Paul bound for one reason. That is, to keep peace in his district. He wants to keep the Jews happy. And if one man being imprisoned uh, keeps there from being a great insurrection during his stint as governor, he'll do it. Because that's the priority for his job. But all in the midst of this, Felix is confronted with the power of the resurrection. And that power is a fearful thing. it calls you either to serve God with a clear conscience or or to be terrified of the prospects to come when you answer before a holy, holy, holy God. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready to answer? I'm not. Oh, I've received Christ as my Savior but I see areas of my life that I say, I don't want to stand before my Savior and have him think of that activity, that thought, that idle word I want to serve him better with a clearer conscience not just with God but with my fellow men and by his help we strive to not that I've already attained but I press on One way or the other today, the resurrection should invoke us to a fearful expectation. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for Paul's testimony and his hope in the resurrection, but also the force that it drove throughout his days to serve you faithfully and in righteousness and to keep his conscience clear before God and men. Lord, we thank you for his testimony. And we recognize that we also have a will to choose likewise. That we will be held accountable for those choices. against not our standard, but yours. And Lord, our prayer is that we might seek deliverance from your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be ready always to confess our sins, to have them cleansed, that we might receive the righteousness of Christ, be renewed in your spirit day by day, And Lord, we pray for the lost around us. And we so often, so desperately want them to come to you that we aren't often willing to allow them the guilt and the fear and the agony and the misery that it takes for them to consider your path. And so we water your message down to make it palatable. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, as we encounter people who are fearful because they've really thought this, Lord, help us to continue to share with them the way of Christ. Through your word, with the law and the prophets, we praise says in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.